Hey everyone, and welcome to the Weekly Marketer Podcast. Every single week, we interview deep dive experts in one of the many fields of marketing to drop huge knowledge bombs from the best of the best and teach you how to take your marketing skills to the next level. This is episode 004, and we're interviewing Chris Franks, who is the organizer of Denver Founders, the largest startup meetup in Denver. In addition, he's the CEO of Clever Funnel, a marketing agency that is focused on scaling growth stage companies. Chris, thank you very much for joining me today. Welcome to the Weekly Marketer Show. Jeremy, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, super appreciate it. Now, we, so we go back a little bit. Once upon a time, you were my client a few years ago. That's true. That is true. And uh, I, don't think I, I don't think I did too bad. I don't think I screwed up too much. But <laughs> No, I think, I think we did some really, really cool work together. I, I really, um, I thought that we were doing some really innovative stuff. And, and uh, sometimes, as is the case, maybe even a little bit too innovative for, for, uh, the, work, for the company we were working with. Well, that's true. Yeah, we were kind of doing some really neat stuff back in the Wild West days of Facebook ads when you could target, you know, 50 people that have a specific job title, that sort of thing, and build out individualized funnels. Yeah. What did we What did we say? Left-handed podiatrist in Paducah, Kentucky we could talk to? Yeah, I think we actually put that together for a presentation we did once. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, Chris, why don't you tell uh, our audience a little bit about your background, what your expertise is, and... Yeah, how you kind of, you know, how you kind of got to where you are. Sure. I, I think I came into the growth marketing world a little bit differently than most people. And I came into growth marketing as a founder and CEO. So my story is created a company coming up on about 10 years ago now. And we had a $0 marketing budget and we were competing against a entrenched competitor with salespeople that had expense cards and would take our mutual sales prospects out to, let's just call them gentlemen establishment <laughs> and thousand dollar meals and all this sort of stuff. And we were a scrappy startup trying to figure out a way to carve out a small piece of that market. When we went to Washington, D.C. or we went on, on sales visits, we'd sleep on friends' floors. And so we were super scrappy. So in the age before we even called it really digital marketing, I got really interested in this concept of how could we reach our target market without traditional sales tactics, without having a big budget, and got really interested in the early wild, wild west days of social media, blogging, early paid, pay-per-click, et cetera. And so I knew for my company to be successful, I needed to figure out different ways that people were buying. And it just so happened that that was where the big shift was going. I, I'd love to say that I was smart enough to know that I was in front of the trend that would kind of define customer acquisition for the next 50 years. In reality, is, is we were just poor and, and we didn't have a budget. So we were trying to figure out ways to reach our customers. And that's, so, that's where I ended up in the world of growth. Did some consulting, worked in-house for a couple of startups after I sold that company, and was looking around for my next opportunity and realized that what I liked doing most was this work. I love helping growth stage companies figure out their customer acquisition process. So I did the thing that every entrepreneur says to never do, and that's start a services company. And that's how I found myself here at Clever Funnel. Yeah, uh, I think that we all say that and then we all end up doing it, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like a black hole. You just sort of get, you get sucked into doing this work and 
And uh, I know for you as well, it's just, it's endlessly fun and fascinating. It, it really is. And I think that one of the reasons it serves kind of the entrepreneurial class so well, if you will, is that it gives us new shiny objects to chase all the time, right? Because we're doing the same thing and we have some degree of stability working for the same company, but we're getting to switch from project to project to project to project all day long. Right. Well, and I think, you know, I say this often, which is, you know, the two most dangerous words in all of business is we should. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we should is incredibly dangerous. And what growth marketing does and what the growth framework does is it tells you what you should be focused on as opposed to we should be doing all these things. Of course, you should be doing all these things, but you don't have the time, energy, money to accomplish them. Right. And equally important, the things you shouldn't be doing. You know what I mean? That's exactly right. That's that's even more important. I think you're right. Well, it, it depends on your perspective, but yeah. So as I've known you though, and, and tell me, tell me, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about Clever Funnel and kind of what you all really specialize in? Like, what's what's your forte as an agency? Because everybody likes to car out their own little corner of the universe. Right. Well, I, we call ourselves a growth marketing agency, and I think one of the problems that we have in the industry right now is nobody can agree on terminology for anything. Um, nobody knows exactly what a growth marketing agency is versus a digital marketing, et cetera. But what we try to do is apply a structured and data-centric approach to all phases of the customer acquisition process. So we have a couple rules that we live by. Number one is we go into it, and you, you and I, I think, formed this, or, or you maybe even taught me this, is that my opinion does not matter at all. Yeah, I think I actually, uh, I think I pissed off your CEO when I said that, actually. Yeah, <laughs> he probably did. But nobody's opinion matters. The only thing that matters is what we can prove through data. If you can't measure it, it didn't happen. I Brand marketing, I think that there's some brilliant people in that space, but it makes no sense to me. I don't understand billboards. I barely understand television or radio ads. I just don't get it because I can't measure a causation and effect. So we work with what we call growth stage companies. We do work with some startups, but mainly it's post product market fit. You figured out the fact that there's people willing to buy your stuff. And we're the guys that you bring in to throw gas on the fire and to really help you ramp up and scale quickly in a individual market, different markets, finding new markets, tangential markets, side markets, et cetera. We are six people in Denver, Colorado. We are, I'm sitting here today, uh, a block away from Coors Field, which I think is going to be very lonely in October. I don't think there's going to be any games here. But... <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of easier for me to park and come see you, though. <laughs> that, yeah, that's right. But what we, we do have Oktoberfest that's going to be on the street down below us. So oh, yeah. We've been in Denver, um, you know, born and bred. We work with companies all over the country, though. That's cool. That's super cool. So, you know, kind of in this data centric approach, though, right? And this is what this is the thing that I think a lot of people miss. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on the show is that just because it's a data centric approach doesn't mean that you throw out the human element and your ability to kind of marry that human element with the data and say, hey, you know, we're going to really have a lot of empathy. We're going to understand these people. We're going to understand their pain point, And then we're going to use data to prove it has always been what I've, you know, the reason that I've held you in such esteem as a marketer, if you will. Right. Oh, well, well, well thank you, sir. 
Um, <laughs> I think that one of the things that people in the traditional digital marketing world forget is that behind every single purchase, whether it's an enterprise SaaS or whether it's downloading an application, there's a human being that is making that decision. And trying to understand that human being is the core of what we do. Try to understand who that person is, what motivates them, and then how can we get their attention? That is the fundamental of all of the work that we do. I think one of the things that people miss a lot is they understand that concept of trying to find target markets in the business to consumer world. You know, I know I need to find somebody, if I'm selling Spotify, I need to find a music lover. What people tend to miss, and we deal a lot in the enterprise SaaS space, is you don't sell enterprise SaaS to a building. If, let's say you're trying to sell to IBM, right? You don't sell to an office park. You sell to human beings that exist within that organization. And trying to understand who those humans are is the core of what we try to do. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's really interesting. I, I, I do think you bring up a point because a lot of people are like, well, B2B and B2C aren't the same. And I'm like, you know, the guy that's buying a million dollar piece of software, guy or gal buying a million dollar piece of software is also the same one going home, clicking on an ad on Facebook to buy a hoverboard, like in some cases, right? And so like, just because they're in a different mindset, just because they're looking for different things, doesn't mean that they aren't people at the end of the day. And and I think sometimes folks get so fixated on like, you know, keyword strategy, right? That they forget at the end of the day, it's not keywords for the sake of keywords, it's keywords because that is an extension of how these people are looking to solve their problem. Right. I, I, you know, one of the things, there's an old saying in the startup world that I love, which is people will take aspirin before they'll take vitamins. What that means is if your company solves a real and definable problem, you have a much better chance than something that'll be good for these people in the long term. So the question that we challenge people, and for just talking to some founders of a startup or even you know, rapid growth stage companies is define the problem you're trying to solve. How intense is that problem? We certainly use digital tools to help define that, but that human being's problem is the core of what we're doing. I joke around and say, if you're solving a problem for dozens of poor people, you're going to have a problem. If you're solving a big problem for millions of millionaires, that's a great business. It's a great business to have. And I also say that if you if if your target market is literally taking anti-anxiety medication because of the problem you solve, you're going to be in a really good place. Right. No, it's true. Yeah. So so that that's interesting. So so thinking about this human, how do you like what what exercises do you do? How do you actually go about doing this? Because you walk into a new business that you know sells. I don't know caffeinated bubble gum or something like that and like you're you just have no idea and you're like okay how do you get that empathy for their customer how do you understand their customer like what what is that journey what does that process look like uh, i think that there's there's multiple ways to approach it and so i'll i'll start with the obvious kind of tactical stuff and then we can move into the more imaginary friend stuff most companies have thought through to some capacity who their target market they think will be. Okay. Interesting. Some other companies, I mean, I, I think I've, no, I've no, dealt with some. No, no, what do you mean by that? Like, I actually don't disagree. I just want to, like, dig in. Yeah. Well, no, I think that, so 
you know, you and I have been around startups for a long time. There's occasionally some really, really awesome engineers that have created a product and never really considered exactly who their target market may be. But that's really, really few and far between. The vast majority of people that have taken time and energy to say, hey, I'd like to start this company, have some sort of a concept of who they think their market may be. Now, rule number one is they're probably wrong, but that's okay. It's a good place to start for us in our testing methodology. So the first thing that we try to do is to say, do you have any data that backs up this on who this target market is? Do you have 100 email addresses? Do you have 200 email addresses? Do you have 1,000 email addresses? As you know, in the 20th, 21st century now, <laughs> the email address is what the key to unlocking people's online identity. And this can be very, very simple, which is trying to find a few samples of that email list and going through and trying to identify them, do some old-fashioned cyber-stalking on Facebook or LinkedIn or any of the other social network sites. Can you find this person and start to try to get an idea about who they are? There are also you know, some really very cool borderline creepy tools that allow you to put a list of email addresses into a system and come back with some really, really interesting data back around contact. those. Full contact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some really, really cool stuff right now that allows you to get some very, very deep insights. For the longest time, Facebook was the most powerful tool in the world when it came to that. They've since locked down some of the ability for you just to load in a list and they come back and tell you really specifically what that audience looks like, feels like, tastes like. I think the Russians just figured out what we figured out, but we were just trying to sell software. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're just trying to sell some software. But this also lends to your point, which is we're very, very data-driven and very focused. However, we also spend a lot of time and energy being creative around thinking through who these people are, thinking through these segments to start to say, we call them personas, buyer personas, not a new concept. Who is it that we think could be a potential audience for this caffeinated bubblegum example? Why would they be interested in that? And we go through an exercise called persona development where we build these imaginary people and get oddly specific with them. We'll talk through where they live, what kind of car they drive, their family situation, what they do for fun, where they hang out online, where they hang out offline. Do they play tennis? How long is their commute? We do this as an exercise because as you get further down the road, it's way easier to have a conversation with a person like you feel like you know versus we're dealing with 18 to 25 year olds uh, that are sleep deprived for caffeinated gum. Uh, that's a segment. Or, or God forbid, millennials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the, one of the harder markets. That, that amorphous like group that's constantly shifting. and yeah. Right. But I think a lot of people understand the concepts of breaking their markets down into these individual segments. But it really becomes way more powerful when you start trying to have a conversation to a single person. And hopefully that person is an amalgamation of a market. It's an amalgamation of all these characteristics, psychographic, demographic, that brings together a group of humans that you think is going to be your target market. It's just way easier to develop and have that conversation with a single person 
So our personas really become the backbone of everything that we do. It becomes the foundation of every bit of test that we're going to have after we develop these personas. Right. Absolutely. That's super interesting. So we develop these personas, right? And then we we feel like we know these people and stuff, but these aren't static. These are updated as we go, right? Like these are... Always. It's the most living, breathing document that we have. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not like a one and done sort of thing. This is kind of a, if a business is built to meet a market need for a customer, you know, at, it, at its core, then, I mean, this doc, this is almost like your North Star, right? Like this is where you should always be heading, which is understanding and empathizing and creating solutions for your customers, essentially. Or is that fair to say or no? Yeah, I, I like the analogy of the North Star because for Clever Funnel ourselves and businesses we work with, we put our persona documents up on a wall and encourage people to go up and put sticky notes on them and cross through them and say, hey, I just talked to a potential customer that is nowhere near to any of our personas. What are we missing here? Are we missing a persona group? Or are we missing, are we thinking too narrowly about an individual persona group? Absolutely. You know, that's actually an interesting thing that I've learned too. And one thing that I think a lot of, well, I, I've seen several founders fall into it. I don't know if a lot of founders fall into it is they have this idea of who their customer is and they won't let go of it because that's like who they're trying to, I don't know, impress or whatever. Right. I've seen it a lot of times where, you know, founders, especially um, will get kind of tied up in this idea of who their customer is. How do you kind of balance vision with data with this customer archetype as well thrown into it, like this this customer document, this understanding of it? I, I think it's really difficult. I think because for founders, you have to balance this concept of, I am building a company to solve this problem for this group of human beings. Oftentimes, the data can point you in a way that moves you off of that vision. And so you as a founder have to balance this idea to say, am I willing to, I don't want to say compromise my vision, but you know, the famous pivot. Do you pivot early? Do you pivot towards a market or do you do deeper work and analysis in the market that you think you're going to solve? What I will tell you is that the hubris of founders, you, you have to be a little bit crazy to be a founder. You have to have this ego to believe you can be successful in a world where 80% of people fail. Having that humility to go along with that hungry ethos is really critical to be successful. And, and oftentimes for a founder or a, or a leadership team of a company that truly believes their market is in this one direction, it takes longer to be able to demonstrate to them that there's a bigger, healthier market other places, that there might be a greener pasture. But at the same time, it's simply a matter of letting that data tell the story because I'm not going in and telling them what I think. I'm telling them what the data shows me. But it's a difficult situation for founders. I think it's a difficult situation for growth marketers as well because we have to be true to the data but they have to be true to their vision. Right. No, it's true. And I mean, as much as like I give founders, you know, I'm giving founders crap about like bias going into a situation. Like I certainly have my own, even as the marketer, right? As much as I try and be like this neutral arbitrator of data, I'm not. And it's something that I have to be extremely conscious of. And even I'm not perfect at, I just am okay because I do it a lot. 
you know, trying to be a conduit and then recommend, you know, kind of tactics and advert and messaging and things like that based on that and letting the data guide rather than, you know, like interjecting my own personal opinions, right? Because like I have, like I do a ton of Facebook ads, right? That's like probably most of my work at this point. But, you know, I could very well be in a situation where like, oh, well, actually it would make the most sense to, I don't know, do Google AdWords or something, right? Which I also actually do a lot of, but just for the sake of argument. And it's, you know, it'd be easy enough for me to say, well, I think Facebook's right <laughs> for this, you know? And so it just as marketers, there's, there's also like unique perspective and biases that we have to watch out for going into these situations as well. It, it's so true. And one of the things that I'm sure you see all the time as well is if you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. I'll use the example that's easiest to pick on, which is the traditional old school technical SEO guys. So if somebody comes in and says, hey, I have a customer acquisition problem, their answer is always, well, it's because you have an SEO problem. They might have a huge SEO problem, but that's not the solution to their problem. Their problem is they have a customer acquisition problem. And so we have to be so cautious about saying even, even two companies that look and feel almost identical, we don't use the same tactics to solve one problem that we do for the other. We have to be very careful. One of the things in, in I'm sure you get the question all the time as well is, hey, uh, what do you think about pay-per-click or what do you think about Facebook ads? And my answer is always maddening for them, but it depends. It depends on those personas and where they hang out. And if they hang out on Facebook, great. If they don't hang out on Facebook, we got to figure out different tactics. That's exactly it. Yeah, I think it depends is the bane of my existence. It's the <laughs> it's my like the thing I hate to say the most, but thing that I probably do say the most. It's like, well, what do you think about Facebook? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I think that Facebook's a great platform, but yeah, no, it's true. A hundred percent, it's true. I would say, statistically speaking, it's the best opportunity to reach the most amount of human beings on the planet. Right. As of, absolutely. As of right now, yes. And for probably the foreseeable future, also, yes. Um, you know, there's a reason that them and Google together, Facebook and Google together, eat up 80% of digital ad dollars. Um, I say that's the reason why Google can build self-driving cars. That's exactly right. Yeah, because they have the... They have an incredible amount of capital from, you know, they're huge. Really, they're an advertising company and nobody likes to think of them that way, but they are. All right, cool. Well, so if, if I'm listening to this, right, and I'm a marketer or I'm a founder or whatever, what is the one thing that I can do today to have more customer empathy and kind of tie this data approach back to understanding my customer? What's like a, you know, what, what's a thing that I could do? right now today? Sure. I would say start with the concepts of thinking very, very deeply about your target market personas. And I don't think personas are a new concept. I've been using them in product development for years. What we do just gets a little bit deeper than that base concept. So think very deeply about each one of those people. Think about what they care about, why they care about. It. So we have what we call the persona and then the driver. The driver being those concepts that they care about, what is it that attaches that person to the product or service that you're selling? There has to be a reason that they care about what it is that you're selling. So 
think deeply about that and then test, test, test. And what that looks like in using Facebook as an example is run the same ad against four or five different persona groups on a $10 budget and try to identify which one of those persona groups is strongest, is relatively strongest. Who's engaging the most, who's clicking the most. And then, you know, after that, maybe get on the phone and call a few of them, <laughs> talk to them and see. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's something that we can fall into a little bit of a trap of saying we're understanding people's behavior. We understand how they behave in an online setting, but nothing, nothing can substitute having a conversation with a client. And I think you and I do a similar tactic, which is never underestimate the power of a $10 Starbucks gift card. Yeah, that's true. Say, for somebody that converts, you learn about them early on, say, can I buy you a cup of coffee just to talk about who you are and why you care about this product? Right, absolutely. And I've learned some interesting things doing that in the, as well. So big takeaway today is going to be, as Chris said, write out your personas, your customer personas, put them up on the wall, like he said, run some ads to them on Facebook using like Facebook's demographic targeting and stuff. And then if you get a couple of people to sign up, give them a phone call, offer them a Starbucks gift card to spend a few minutes chatting. So that's, that's one of the best things, easiest things you can do to learn more about your customers today. That's fantastic. So I've got a couple of listener questions here that I'm pulling up. Is that all right if we do a couple of questions from the mailbag with you, Chris? Let's do it. All right. How would you target and understand a local audience for brick and mortar, like somebody that would walk into your store? Um, phenomenally good question. And one that's really interesting because you are dealing with a hyper-specific geography versus, you know, millennials that want caffeinated gum. That's a huge market. So the question that I would ask is what people are currently walking into the store, looking at them, trying to identify any sort of segments or grouping, going through that persona exercise of just current human beings, if you have an existing brick and mortar store, trying to understand just looking who's walking in the door, then understand that individuals that live in, in specific geography, so I'll just use Denver as an example, they behave differently than people are going to behave in Cleveland. And so as you're doing your testing in your persona building, making sure that you're keeping a very tight geographic market trying to identify those personas and their drivers. And so I'm going to limit my ad sets to a very specific geography. And, you know, gosh, we're getting down to the, the ability to, to target city blocks and things like that with some of our ad tech. Um, but in the Facebook world, it's, it's simple uh, of just doing a zip code. All right, cool. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. So there is an interesting, here's another one. It's, how do I understand what sort of buyer would be a good fit for my B2B technology startup? And how is that different from understanding a consumer product? And I think we touched on this a little bit already, but I just want to make sure that we fully answer this for this person. Yeah. And I think, I think that, you know, to, to reiterate the point we made earlier in the B2B space, remember that the fundamentals are the same. Number one, you're talking to a human being, not a robot. I mean, on very rare occasions, I think it could be a smart robot. 
but I haven't run across any smart robots yet. I got into a conversation with a chatbot the other day, and I only realized it halfway through. <laughs> I think that says more about me than the chatbot, though. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's probably something's coming coming more later. But the number one, realize that you're talking to a human being. Number two is the reason that they're going to consider you in a business that is a software is that your software solves a problem, and so understanding the depth of that problem, how painful is that problem, and how motivated is that buyer to solve that problem really gives you a very clear understanding of whether or not your product is going to be able to grow rapidly. And then obviously the mechanics around understanding those buyer personas. I think the only thing I would add is that we live in a world where almost no decision is made by a single human being in the business-to-business space anymore. We have to work through the consensus sale. And so with our business-to-business clients, we try to identify who is the decision makers and who are the influencers and build personas around those groups. Well, that makes a ton of sense to me. I got a couple more questions here for you. First, I got one here. I'm sure this has been mentioned already, but... Offline marketing, how do you apply data discipline towards offline marketing and what sort of tactics would you suggest? Um, Really phenomenal question. One of the funny things in our world is that whatever is old and cliche today is going to be cool tomorrow. Direct mail is hot again. I have no idea why, but direct mail is suddenly incredibly hot. There's a couple of different concepts here and they're, they're a little bit complicated, so I'll kind of try to keep them high level, which is If you're doing testing of an individual product, remember that a website is still the key. So is there a way that you can use either coupon codes, you can use individualized URLs, can you use cleverfunnel.biz on a direct mail piece or on a postcard that I'm sending to somebody versus cleverfunnel.com for my web presence? So you can split URLs, even if you're cloning your page, right? Even if it looks and feels the same way, even if you're going uh, or some sort of a landing page strategy, you can try to identify. If none of that stuff makes any sense for your offline strategy, just keep a absolute glued to your analytics suite, whether it's Mixpanel or GA or any of the others, to try to identify some sort of a benchmark of traffic and conversions before your offline tactic. And then what's happening so I, I sent out 100 direct mail pieces. What happened to my website traffic? What happened to my conversions? What happened to my phone calls or people stopping me on the street and saying, hey, Chris, I'm interested in, in talking to you more about your service? Yeah. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. So um, I got two more here that I think would be good for everybody. This user says, it would be great if we could touch on how to reach multiple customer archetypes at the same time with one marketing message? How do you balance that? Uh, yeah, it would be great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's what I'll tell you. There, there are times when you go through your testing and we call these super drivers, which is, let's use our caffeinated gum concept, that the idea of staying awake is the most important marketing message regardless of your persona group. Right. Right. Whether it's millennials or old guys like me. Well, that's yeah. the reason why you're going to buy that. Think, think about it this way. They're like a hospital. 
Like, it goes, I don't care if you're young, old, poor, rich, you know, black, white, man, woman, whatever. Nobody wants to die of a heart attack. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right, exactly. We're going to heal all of you. That being said, one of the things that we understand in today's day and age is that macro time on site. So the time that somebody, however they get to your website, you have less of an opportunity to convert them to some sort of a lead than you ever have in the past. And so creating an individualized journey for your persona groups is becoming increasingly important. So can you identify a ultimate driver, something that they care about of a similar marketing message? Yeah, if you can figure that out, you're ahead of the game. But I'd also say, let data be your guide there. If your persona groups, if an individual persona group is bouncing, is not spending enough time on site and ultimately not converting down the pathway that you're trying to design for them, think about trying to create an individualized conversion pathway for that persona group. Yeah. Okay. That, that's. I think that that's good. I think that you're right too. The answer is, is that there isn't going to be, for most products, there's not going to be one overarching perfect message right and honestly even with things like television and billboards and stuff like that there's a lot of demographic info around them as well so you can still do some segmentation like you said people in denver are not the same as people in cleveland so last last question here and this is a good one i think um actually and it's a little off topic but i'm gonna go with it anyways just because i think it's an awesome one an important subject is career development and marketing being partly self-taught marketing as a profession can feel overwhelming from time to time that's my experience how do you get past feeling stuck and continue advancing in your career as a marketer? Wow. It's a phenomenally good question. The first thing I would say is, a, and just really empathizing with that and saying, don't feel like there's this group of humans that exist that have all the answers. Because as I'm fond of saying, and I think you've probably said it too, Jeremy, is that marketing and customer acquisition as a whole has changed more in the past five years in the previous 500. There are no room full of people that have this figured out. We are all in the process of figuring this out every single day. So certainly understand this world can feel incredibly difficult and overwhelming, but don't think that you're ill-prepared because you're not. This is day two of the next 500 years of customer acquisition. I think for the more practical advice is, being a generalist in this day and age is better than knowing one platform incredibly well. So you and I run into people that are really, really strong on building super badass pay-per-click campaigns. Knowing a little bit about pay-per-click, a little bit about programmatic, a little bit about content, a little bit about social is actually a benefit for the new marketer versus becoming an expert and becoming siloed in an individual channel that may or may not be as effective as it is today as in five years from now. Like who knows whether or not Facebook ads is going to be super strong five years from now. Right now, it's the best show in town. We know that to be true. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe programmatic gets really, really badass in the coming five years. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's interesting. Like I've spent time around these gurus and they're definitely incredibly smart. Just to throw my two cents in on this too. Um, I spent time around these gurus and stuff like that, and they are incredibly smart, but really what it comes down to is just work ethic and like voracious consumption of like educational content. Like they're not these 
they, they are very smart. And I've definitely learned a lot from these people, a handful that I've been able to interact with, but they're not this monolith. You know what I mean? They aren't the only thing that they do that's different. If you really want to break into that top, like 0.1% of marketers and be like, you know, ad agency royalty, um, all you have to do is just work <laughs> and like listen and be open to learning and things like that. The one thing that I do see that gets people stuck is they've decided that something is the way it is and they aren't open to new data points. Um, that, that does seem to derail people pretty quickly. Um, you know, just saying, well, I, I completely agree. Uh, you know, billboards worked in 1982 and damn it, they work today. So <laughs> like, I mean, they do to an extent, I'm not picking on billboards, but I'm saying that getting stuck in one mindset can be fatal, but everything else you got time, just work your tail off, read everything that you can learn everything from everyone you can, but always, you know, even with the experts approach it with some degree of skepticism. Right. So. And, you know, when it takes enough time to become an expert, by the time you become an expert, it's going to change. That's exactly it, right? Facebook changes a, a setting in their API, or let's say you were the best Vine video maker that there ever was. Well, guess what? Vine just disappeared one day. And that, that was that, you know? So it's, it's about like kind of learning a skill set that you can transfer. I, I, I agree with your kind of comment there. So. Well, Chris, I super appreciate your time today. I just want to give, before we take off, I want to give you a chance. You can pitch whatever it is you want, um, anything uh, that you want uh, to pitch. And now is the time I give this opportunity to all of my guests. So Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a ton of fun. Um, I think that um, my single pitch is just a, a free resource you can get at uh, cleverfunnel.com. Go to cleverfunnel.com slash clever founder. Um, it's an ebook that we put together that um, sort of co-authored with my team that gives a lot of the sort of our framework and approach to solving these problems. It's not the only framework or approach, but it's certainly one that can help guide people as they try to solve some of the problems that we just talked about. So cleverfunnel.com slash clever founder. Okay, perfect. And I'll put a link to that when I post it on uh, YouTube and everything. So everybody can grab that. So Chris Franks, incredibly, incredibly fun to talk to you. Um, really always learn a lot every time that we speak. You know, I, I feel like I uh, still learn a lot from you every time. I really appreciate you sharing your insights and taking your valuable time in order to kind of share with my audience and hopefully help them empathize with their customers a little bit more. Thank you so much again. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. All right, and all of you listeners out there, thank you so much. Go out there, have more empathy for your customers, segment them, talk to them, and then conquer the world with your businesses. Thank you everybody and happy marketing.